Hi, I'm Jim Martin. A few days ago, I woke up with the left side of my face slumped. Now, luckily, after going to the hospital, etc., it wasn't a stroke, but it turns out that it's Bell's palsy. That's what they think it is. And although they don't know for sure, many scientists believe that Bell's palsy comes from some dormant virus that we have in our body, um, which apparently we all have. And occasionally, for some unknown reasons, they flare up. Now, I haven't been sick or, or anything like that, and I'm, and I'm in very good general health. I know that for sure because they did a lot of tests on me. Anyway, in this case, it affects the nerves that control all the face muscles on my left side. Obviously, it affects drinking, eating, blinking, and of course, and the worst for me, is speech. Because this is what I do for a living. I'm being treated and hopefully will recover, but there's no guarantee. And how, how long this is going to take is anyone's guess. Now, I'm only telling you this because I don't want you to mistake this occasional slur or fumble as some sort of <laughs> drunken binge or something. No, I haven't hit the bottle. It's Bell's palsy. And I'm working really, really hard to hide it and find new ways to pronounce my words. And hopefully I can pull this off. Oh, okay. Uh, Kathy and I were in Bogota and we went into this barrier and six guys came up and three grabbed Kathy, three grabbed me. Uh, the main guy at the front had a knife. Um, they, they, one put their arms around us from the back so that our arms were held down. But both Kathy and I are quite large, so they couldn't sort of stop us. So they just grabbed a plastic bag that had a couple of beers in it um, asked us for mobile phones and, uh, the guy tried to swing at me. So I punched him. Um, he fell down, they jumped up, ran off. But the best thing of the whole story, when they were running away, Kathy went, Hey, hold on a minute. You guys have got my room key. Give me my room key. And the, the guys that mugged us, the guy turned around, put the room keys on the ground and ran off. <laughs> Spencer Conway has what many motorcyclists would say is the best job in the world. He films his moto adventures for TV and gets paid. Just him and his girlfriend riding around the globe. She's filming. He's riding hard, doing his best. The documentaries have been aired on the Discovery Channel. They're on the road for nine months of the year filming, riding, suffering, exploring. True adventure. But is Spencer lucky? Did he stumble into a job that actually anyone could be doing, given the same opportunities that he's had? Or does it take a certain kind of person, personality, approach to life? On today's episode, Spencer talks about the serendipity in his life that has brought him success and adventure and happiness. But between his words and what he says and what he doesn't say, points to something that I think we can all understand in life. It's not what happens to you, it's how you choose to react. I'm Jim Martin. This is Adventure Rider Radio. Stay with us. we got a good one for you.
Okay, before we get going, I want to thank some sponsors that helped bring this episode of Adventure Rider Radio to you. The first one is Max BMW Motorcycles. They've been doing it since 2002. That's Outfitting Adventure Riders. And they have got a load, I mean the full load of parts and accessories online that they can ship to your door. You order online. It's a great way to get your parts. MaxBMW.com. Get their e-rider newsletter. It's free. MaxBMW.com. That's M-A-X-B-M-W.com. And Green Chili Adventure Gear, making American-made heavy-duty innovative luggage systems for all types of motorcycles. You can turn any dry bag into luggage using the strapping system. Um, Great systems. matter of fact, all the stuff they make is super tough. I've tried tons of it myself. The website, greenchiliadv.com. That's greenchiliadv.com. Best Rest Products is where the number one tire pump in the business for us motorcyclists comes from. It's called the Cycle Pump, made in the USA, has lifetime warranty. They also distribute the Google Tech filters for North America. The website, cyclepump.com. That's Best Rest Products at cyclepump.com. And you're listening to Adventure Rider Radio. Well, you know, it's not even guesswork. It's a proven fact that you will get more miles from your chain by oiling it regularly. Here's what you got to look at. The MotoBreeze chain oiler. It's got no moving parts, got no electrical parts. It runs off of air pressure and it's got vacuum connections that take the oil down and deposit it onto a felt pad that goes directly onto your chain. An ounce of oil gets you a thousand miles or 1600 kilometers. MotoBreeze.com. There's two eyes in there. MotoBreeze.com. Spencer Conway and I'm from Swaziland in Southern Africa, otherwise known as Eswatini. It's just changed its name. Spencer, welcome back. Thank you very much, Jim. I really appreciate all your support over the years. It's great that you put up with me. (laughs) Hey, where are you talking from right now? Yeah, I'm actually actually in Mexico. I'm in the deserts. I'm in an, an, an oasis and I'm heading back roads as usual and trying to get to a cargo ship that we've organized to take us over to Colombia. And then from there, we will ride from Barranquilla to the entrance of the Darien Gap to try and get through the Darien Gap myself and Kathy Nell, my girlfriend. Uh, she will be the first woman ever to get through with the motorbike if we make it. The Darien Gap? You're going to do this? Yeah, we're doing the Darien Gap. It's the For people that don't know, it's an area between Panama and Colombia. And it's basically an inhospitable area full of marshland and swamp and uh, dodgy trails. And uh, I think, don't quote me on this, but I think from 1973, about three bikes, bikes have been through. A couple of army guys tried it as well. Quite a few people have failed. Uh, we're fighting to get there as quick as possible because in the rainy season, it's going to be almost impossible. So, yeah, we're on our way now and hopefully we'll be on the boat within two days and then into Colombia. I'm not sure if it's just you're your filtering for looking for a rosy uh, a future, but you left out criminals in that uh, with the Darien Gap. 
Okay, fair enough. Uh, unfortunately, uh, they've they've kept it close for two reasons. One is that Panama and Colombia have had problems. Two, it's an area where illegal immigrants uh, uh, go through. Um, and also it's where the cartel move drugs. So we have to have an Indian guide who have we, we have organized. For one reason, I get lost in my own kitchen, as you know, so I wouldn't make it through the Darien without his help. And secondly, uh, along the route, they have paramilitary that have snipers. And uh, if you don't introduce yourself, you'll get shot in the head. So it's much better to uh, have a guide who can radio forward, knows the route and has done it before. So this, this is going to be the, the hero of the trip, him. And I will, of course, be uh, advertising this fantastic dude, too. You, your girlfriend, Kathy, um, your motorcycle, you're going to get all that through the Daring Gap with the help of this guide. Are there apprehensions with that? Um, no, I'm fine about it, actually. Uh, the thing is that... Um, you know, it, number one, we're not taking a film crew. Many people have asked. It is just me and Kathy and the guide. And the last guys that went through, they took eight porters with them who carried their bikes. Um, fantastic. But it's not my thing. Uh, I want to try and struggle as much as possible and just do it like that. So it's not solo, but it's three of us, which is close enough for me. And it's really rough going. I mean, aside from the the, um, the paramilitaries you mentioned, the criminals that are, that are in the area, there's indigenous peoples that live there, but also very wet, it's jungle. Um, some of it, you're going to have to traverse water, I'm assuming some sort of uh, water transportation. Absolutely. The, the problem we're facing at the moment is the best window of opportunity is actually around between the 1st and the 5th of January. And then the weather starts changing. So we're running a bit late. And as you said, yeah, you, there are no roads really. So you will be on slippery mud trails. And indeed, uh, you have to use a canoe um, to go through the, the swampland areas. I think they call them mangroves, actually. And uh, we'll load the bikes. And just to correct one thing you said, uh, Jim, that people don't actually know is Kathy is also taking a bike. Oh, so this is a change. Has Kathy always been a rider? Oh, yes, she's always been a rider, but she hasn't been riding, obviously, because she's been on the back filming. Um, but we really, we decided this because it would make her the first woman to take a motorbike. It would have been great, the two of us, but, you know, she's, she's got her her wants as well. And she's a real adventurer. She's a great, great woman. Um, so yeah, she's got a, a bike. I can't tell you what it is, but I'll send you a picture, Jim. You'll laugh your head off. <laughs> I, I can't imagine any practical reason other than what you just said for taking a motorcycle, an extra motorcycle. I mean, it's sort of like, you know, you're going to cross a tightrope and you say, on top of that, I'm going to throw a jug of water on my head, uh, you know, just to make things more difficult because you're really just going to be slogging another motorcycle. I know, it's a bit stupid, isn't it? <laughs> well, I wasn't going to say that. I was cutting short of that. But I, I'm just wondering, uh, I mean, I understand why you're doing it, of course, and, it, and it's a great idea. Why not just let Kathy ride your bike? Um, because we have a, a, because it's such a harsh terrain and it's quite a big adventure, we have a little card up our sleeves, which is actually a bit comedic. We, we want to add a comedy element so that people don't think, oh, these guys are super cool adventurers. Just want to make it a bit lighthearted. How do you do that? Um, with the choice of motorbike of Kathy. <laughs> okay, so, so we'll wait and see. That. Hey, for those who don't know, Spencer, what, what exactly do you do? Um, I'm not sure, really. I wander around the world aimlessly. Now, I'm a motorcycle adventurer, and I'm just trying to circumnavigate the whole world. Just be the first person to circumnavigate every continent 
and plus, of course, raise money. Um, I've just been made a global ambassador for Motorcycle Outreach. It's an amazing uh, company. They basically, they train midwives and uh, they train them to ride motorcycles and they provide the motorcycles to go to inaccessible areas in India or, you know, third world countries that are struggling to provide medical assistance. So I was just made global ambassador for those guys. So I'm super proud of that. No, congratulations. So no, thanks a lot. And of course, I raised quite a bit for Save the Children. So it's that. It's just to push myself to the limit. But it's also to, I just want to inspire people to ride, really. That's the main thing. I mean, I don't expect anyone to do what we do and what a lot of the long distance guys do because they got jobs. And, you know, I'm, I'm spending all my money. I'll be uh, begging on the street soon, but it doesn't matter. I just want to, I, I just want to try and succeed, you know, well, Jim? You, you know, the thing is though, it's those extremes that do inspire people, isn't it? Those stories of, of, of extremes. I was just talking with Austin Vince and he was mentioning seeing evil can evil. And that was sort of the impetus for him getting onto two wheels. And, and that's an extreme I and mean, nobody wants to be evil can evil really and break all those bones, et cetera. But it's inspirational to see what someone can do or what's possible, um, what people will try. And this sort of gets your own wheels going. What do I want to do? Yeah, well, I hope so. I mean, if I even inspire one person, that's really great for me. I mean, it's really nice to, pe- to speak to people. I do really enjoy this, you know, this social media. I didn't in the beginning. Uh, I'm not really super sociable, but I'm finding through discussions with you and um, uh, Facebook, Instagram, all that nonsense that you end up having great discussions with people. And then you suddenly meet someone in some country and they're they're like, oh, I watched your program or I read your book or, uh, you know, I saw this interview and it inspired me to go. That really does make your day. You did mention Motorcycle Adventure. You mentioned that you're you're now an ambassador for Motorcycle Outreach. You're still raising money for Save the Children, which you've done before. Um, Actually, I, I guess you've done that since the start, haven't you? I have indeed. But actually, I've I've split from Save the Children now. I've sort of done my thing there, and, I, and this is not for any bad reason. It's just that motorcycle outreach is much closer to my heart. And the gentleman that started it, Simon Millward, he was an adventurer. He was going around the world. Unfortunately, when he got to Mali, something happened, and they found his motorbike, and they found his body lying next to the road. And uh, his family and his mother, who's about 80, comes to all the motorbike shows, And they have his motorbike on a stand and it's a very, very touching thing. And uh, I just feel very proud that I was chosen to sort of continue his legacy, really. What happened to Simon? They don't know. Hmm. He had an an accident or something. But he still had all his money on him and everything was intact. No obvious injuries, but... uh, Oh, so you think it was an accident just going off Uh, the road? Came off the bike, yeah, we're not really sure. And then maybe someone found him and laid his body out next to the bike. I'm just guessing, Jim. Mm. It's one of those mysteries that will never be solved. But uh, a very sad story, but very inspiring guy. Well, I, I want to go back to what you said about being a motorcycle adventurer. That, that's that's not how you make your money. Well, not directly. I mean, there is no job that, that you actually get paid for riding a motorcycle unless you add something to it. And in your case, it's film. Yeah, absolutely. It's it's a couple of things. Uh, it's film, of course. Um, as we're combining the Central and South America ones now, that's been a bit delayed because it was going to be South America. So that'd be the next series. Yeah, I get paid for that. It covers the expenses to continue traveling, but don't let anybody be fooled. It doesn't make you rich, Jim. I'm not complaining. I don't care. Well, the other thing is... Uh, wait a second. Wait a second. You're, 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 you're on TV. I mean, this is going to Discovery Channel. How are you not getting rich or at least making good money out of that? probably because I'm not a very good businessman. Mm. Um, 
No, I, I, uh, I don't. I won't go into it. Originally, I sold the first series uh, for a song because I didn't know what I was doing. But I also make um, money through uh, magazine articles. I write for some really great bike magazines. Um, so, yeah, uh, it, it works out okay. And, and we'll carry on and carry on until, until the job's done, hopefully. Well, you, you sort of have, a, a, I guess, an ongoing contract with uh, Discovery Channel to continue these trips. Can you talk about that? Yeah, sure. We we have basically we're independent, say Jim. So we make the programs and we sell them. So actually, I don't have an ongoing contract, but we have verbal agreements. Um, so what happens is I send them out to travel to National Geo to Discovery, etc. And then uh, we you know we go for the best buyer, really. So that's that's how it works. Mm, so every season you're sort of rolling the die again. You you head out there, you put all your money up front, do all your filming. Um, wow, this sounds so old-fashioned. And then actually have to pet, try and peddle it to somebody afterwards with the full oh, yeah, chance yeah. that somebody could say, or everybody could say no. Oh, no, absolutely. But I mean, funny things happen, Jim, because for example, uh, there's a gentleman in, okay, don't laugh at me, eh? There's a gentleman in India who um, saw my programs. He actually had the DVD. And uh, I'm going to be in a Bollywood film. Okay, I said, I mean, I, I agreed with a nod that I wouldn't laugh at you. Um, Go on. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I've been... Now, I've you been, did I, that. Just, now, what are you no, going to be I in a Bollywood... What are you going to do in the film? I know, it's bloody ridiculous. I've got no idea, really. It's, uh, it's supposed to be an action-adventure film involving motorcycle gangs in Delhi, wow. in India. So you could be so, like a Bruce Lee type of actor. Um, Spencer Lee. No, it doesn't sound good. Uh, no, it's, it's, it's just, it's, I was, the reason I point it out is cause obviously I'll get paid for that. So sometimes things work, sometimes they don't work and you just take it as it comes. But as long as I can keep traveling, then that's okay. I mean, I've got my same kit from 10 years ago. Uh, I've got my same army bag, my same tent, my same panniers. Everything's the same. As you know, we camp all the time, eat the street food. So you can you can live ex- extremely cheaply. The main thing is obviously maintenance, keeping the bike going, petrol and all that sort of thing. But I'm probably making what p- people make in a normal job, but I'm doing what I absolutely love. So no complaints there. So you're so desperate to stay on the road. You'll do anything for work. I I live for my motorbike. I won't do anything for work. That sounds very rude. <laughs> well, I don't know. The Bollywood <laughs> film, you don't even know what your 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 place is in the film. I'm not even going to go any further into it's, that it's one. Not a, it's not a naked film, don't worry. <laughs> that's what, I'll I, be wearing that's what I was trying to avoid. I wasn't going to go anywhere further into that. But I, I was going to ask, though, about right now, you, you're saying that you're, you're uh, I think you said you're in Mexico and you're you're headed south. You're headed south to come back north. Yes, I know. It's ridiculous. But we're heading down um, because it's an area near La Paz. It's a private bay where these cargo guys come in. So that sounds dodgy as well. But yeah, so we're heading across and then it takes us over to the mainland, uh, to Mazatlan. And then we drive to Manazilas. It's 200 kilometers. And then the cargo will take us down to Colombia from there. You know, sometime we've got to get Kathy on because I would like to hear what her thoughts and concerns are for this upcoming trip. Jim, I wish you the best of luck, but I will mention it to her. She's She doesn't like being in the limelight. There's probably about five photos of her in the last 10 years. Uh, she she just likes to stay behind the camera, but I will mention it to her and she'll, she'll hit a flat panic that she has to talk to Jim. 
<laughs> she Now, she's the one, as you mentioned, behind the camera all this time. So uh, usually she's riding on the back of your bike or standing on the side of some muddy road, getting shots of you going through whatever strain and stress you're going through. That's part of your conscious decision on this. Um, I know your first one had to be alone, but afterwards you, you sort of made a conscious decision to to avoid a film crew, that sort of thing. Yeah, that was exactly it. It just changes the whole ethos, the whole way people look at you. They see a bunch of microphones, etc. They suddenly change their whole character. They even change the things that they would normally say. And if it's just me and Kathy sitting there, it's a couple. There's a camera out, okay, but it's not like hardcore filming. And you get much more natural look. But yeah, Kathy, honestly, she's the star. I mean, two days ago, we went on a road. I, I swear to God, I've never seen anyone on that road. And Kathy was had to walk five or six kilometers because some of the terrain was way too rough. No complaints whatsoever. Now she's a proper star. Now she's walking ahead, filming you. You go by, then she walks further. That's what you mean? No, she's walking ahead because I'm a rubbish rider. And we hit some really dodgy sections. Now we hit a boulder section. It was basically a dry riverbed of just boulders. And uh, I couldn't take the two of us and all of the luggage. So there are certain sections if it's extremely steep or if there's ravines um, or if it's muddy. She has to do a little bit of walking. Now, I, I think when we we talked oh, one, one time, almost five years ago, I think, about uh, riding in Africa. And at that time, I, I remember you you talking about, you know, what it was like to, to get into this thing of, of doing what you're doing, riding and filming, etc. Sure. What sort of changes have you seen in yourself since then, since starting out on that first adventure? Oh, my God. Yeah, I've changed completely. Uh Number one, I didn't realize how much I loved motorbikes and traveling. So it's fitted the niche perfectly. Secondly, I realized probably the thing that was missing, I'm not trying to sound soft, was having Kathy there. So that was a bonus that they were into her filming. But I think the biggest change is that it's the opposite of what I expected. I've become a little bit more insular. So in a sense, more open to everybody uh, non-judgmental. I mean, I just want anyone to do whatever they want to do. But at the same time, I find myself pulled towards the desert or pulled towards the mountains or pulled towards places where there are very few people. And it's definitely affected my character. I mean, I actually did a, a talk at the Overland Festival in England and I had a bit of a panic attack and I've never had one in my life. And it was purely because of the crowds and that I'd been alone, well, with Kathy in the middle of nowhere, and you get very, very used to it. And it's a very strange situation to come back to like the metro or a big city or something. So it's opened my mind, but it's also made me a little bit more claustrophobic to normal life. Does that make any sense? Well, sure. Yeah, it does make sense because um, really you're, you're spending all your time on the road, aren't you? I mean, you, you, are, are you traveling like 12 months or how many months out of the year? Uh, nine months. So nine months out of the year, you're on the road, which is basically, yeah, and, as you said, you and Kathy. Yeah, 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 absolutely. Just the two of us. And uh, actually, it's probably more than that because we go back to the UK and Europe probably about four or five shows over two months. And then we're back on. Um, yeah, but it, it's extremely addictive. It becomes a way of life. You um, just finished, I mentioned talking to you before about your, your trip in Africa. You just finished a book, The Japanese Speaking Curtain Maker. What is that about? <laughs> okay. Yeah, the Japanese-speaking curtain maker is about my um, circumnavigation in Africa, where I went through 34 countries and 55,345 kilometers. But that's really by the by. That's got nothing to do with it. It's a, a book about um, 
people, really, and about myself, I suppose. I, I don't really know. But uh, to tell you the truth, uh, of all the things I've done, it's probably the thing I'm most proud of uh, because I didn't think I could write, to tell you the truth. And uh, it was picked up by a publisher eventually, which was absolutely brilliant. And the response has been fantastic. Uh, it's a bestseller already and we're setting out the second edition. So I have to ask the question then, what took so long? And it's probably a question you hear a lot. Not a problem. I wrote the book while I was in Africa. I lost my confidence and I put it in a cupboard. And then I brought it out about four years later, finished it off, showed it to a few people, put it back in the cupboard like you do and went on to do uh, South America. And then um, someone from the Telegraph, uh, it's a newspaper in England, read it and said it was fantastic and put me in touch with a uh, publisher, and it was finally published. Well, let's back up and, and set this up. What is, I mean, you mentioned the book is about people, it's about you, but what, it was, it's about a trip. I mean, it takes place on a trip. What was the whole premise of this trip? Okay, the whole premise was I left from London, and the whole idea was to circumnavigate every country that touched the water. The original plan, strangely enough, was just to write a book. So um, I did that. But just before I left, I met a chap from Travel Channel and he said, look, film it. So I just went around and filmed the whole thing. Uh, of course, there was the Save the Children thing. And I wanted to be the first person to circumnavigate Africa. I didn't have the idea of doing every continent at that point. But, you know, things start small. And then if you succeed in one of them, it gives you a bit more confidence and because people were very interested, it also made me um, more keen. Uh, everybody likes to be liked, don't they, Jim? I mean, let's be honest. So um, it was really cool. I'm enjoying all the interaction. And uh, my writing's getting better. I didn't even know I could speak Spanish and French, and I'm fluent in those now. Uh, my relationship with Kathy, I've learned so much about her. It's amazing you can be with someone for 20 years, and then you do these kind of things, and you see another side to someone the people I met on the way, I mean, Africa, uh, a lot of the stories are about a particular guy called Ashraf, a boatsman in, in Aswan in Egypt, who was one of the most incredible people I've ever met. A Canadian guy called Carl Routier. He was walking around Africa and traveling on a donkey and whatever he, method he could. And he ended up doing a lot of filming for me and we got very close. And it's all about relationships and those snippet relationships that only last a day or a week or something, but they're so rich because they're so short and intense. And some people go by the wayside, others become lifelong friends. And even bigger than that for me, I'm a massive fan of uh, wildlife. So uh, it's a dream come true, all of this. You're originally from Africa. So maybe you can talk about your connection with Africa. You know, how much time did you spend in Africa? Because I know you're also from the UK in a way. Absolutely. Okay, yeah. Um, my father works for Overseas Development and uh, uh, the British Council, so he traveled all over the world. But um, my brother was born in Africa. I was taken to Swaziland when I was 15 months old, so I don't remember anything about England. Uh, I have a Swaziland passport now. I spent uh, the first uh, six years in Kenya. I spent the next 15 years in Swaziland, and I went to university in Edinburgh. And uh, then I went teaching at uh, Seychelles Polytechnic on an island. And then I started the circumnavigations more than 10 years ago. And then my life changed completely. So that's the basic story. 
where is Swaziland in Africa and, and what is it like? I'm so glad you asked that. Okay, um, South Africa, in the very south, obviously, the massive country everyone knows about. It is on the east side of uh, South Africa. It has actually just changed its name to make it more complicated to Eswatini. Um, it's claim to fame. It's the best country in the world. But apart from that, uh, it's had the longest reigning king ever. Uh, 62 years, uh, King Sabuza was the reigning king of Swaziland. And it's a very stable country and beautiful riding. There we go. That was my bit of tourism there. <laughs> so <laughs> so you, you said it's a it's beautiful riding. What, what sort of terrain? Uh, it's got everything. It's got mountains in the north. Uh, and then it's got lowlands uh, and desert, and it's got game reserves. It's got all the animals you want, and it's a very, very politically stable country. And yeah, really great people. And I actually am not just saying it because I'm from there. It's a wonderful country. And of course, you've got Namibia next door and South Africa. So if anyone fancied a, a you know a, a beautiful holiday or riding trip of two weeks, you can't do better than the wine route. And then up into Namibia and then across into Swaziland. Wonderful, wonderful trips. Now, coming from Africa, doing a trip in Africa, how do you think that that changes or at least um, gives you a different perspective than, than people come from the outside? I was discussing this with Kathy yesterday, actually. I think it totally depends on your upbringing. I mean, when we were small, we were riding bikes from four years old. But on top of that, we were barbecuing, we were bushwhacking, we were sleeping in the bush. We were, you know, you, you've got snake. I used to collect snakes in break time at school and hide them in my desk. I've got snakes in my house. I collect spiders. Uh, I kill animals to eat. And uh, it's... You know, some people will look at it and go, oh, my God, I don't know how you do that. But for me, it's kind of normal. I mean, you go whitewater uh, canoeing. We've been climbing. Uh, my dad's a long-distance runner and walker, so we used to do a lot of hill trails. So I think it's kind of like your upbringing. If you're in an outward-boundy type place, you're inevitably you're going to be a different kind of person to someone who's brought up in a city and lives in a, in a, a block of flats and – if they can watch and see another side of life and get inspired to get a bike or to just do a bit of traveling, great for me. Or if they can't do that, not in a position to that, if they can enjoy watching things, then that's cool too. Well, growing up, did you explore Africa at all? Did you, did you get outside of Swaziland? Yeah, I did. I rode from Swaziland to Cape Town when I was 17. That was uh, two and a half thousand kilometers, which got me really hooked. But I also did a lot of um, enduro riding for the Draper Draper Company. They make tools. Uh, I did a motocross and uh, enduro for them. So it was, a, it was, you know, when you're young, motocross is fine. Then you turn 15, 16, you get into enduro. Then you get a bit older, so you get into adventure riding. Uh, it's, it's sort of like a natural progression, really. What's after this? Um, death, I suspect. <laughs> so it's going to last that long for you, the adventure riding. I hope I'm riding when I'm 102. What part of the, the Africa trip, trip the, 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 the book is written about, what part of that really surprised you? I mean, so I, I'm hearing, you know, you're, you're from Africa. You've already had experience with Africa. You don't have that culture shock, uh, so to speak, that others would have coming from the outside. Because people, you know, they often say Africa is real serious and you've got to be, you know, it's not something you should do on your first continent, your first exploration. Um, what surprised you? What, what for you was a blindside? Okay, brilliant. Uh, I'll tell you what surprised me was what surprises me in every country, <laughs> how nice everybody is. Uh, I, I really believe, you know, it's the same when you're traveling. You can go 
to a town in, let's just pick a country, Venezuela, which is in a big state. You'll meet people in a town, they'll go, in the next town, everyone is extremely dangerous. You go to the next town and they're wonderful. And they go, oh, it's fine here, but don't go across the borders to that country. They're all animals. And it's just like, you know, it's an ongoing thing. And I just laugh and go, yeah, yeah. And of course, if you're traveling through 130 countries or so, you're going to have problems. You're going to have ups and downs like you would in life anywhere. But uh, the thing that surprised me, Africa, like every continent, how welcoming everybody is. And uh, also, you know, the bike is a magnet, um, totally, for any culture, any people, um, any, any wealth bracket, any age bracket, because it's just covered in 129 um, flags. So it just looks so cool. And it's, an, it's, a, it's a, a conversation breaker. Um, so, yeah, uh, the hospitality of people. And secondly, what surprised me? The beauty. The world is outrageous. In general, you mean just everywhere you go? In oh, in general. So yeah, much to I see. Mean, yeah, I mean, you, you'll hear one little negative comment about a place and that might stick in your head and then you get there and it's the opposite. And uh, I mean, for example, I, I, I'm in the Baja area and it's just incredibly stunning. And then someone comes up to me and says, check out this picture of the Arizona desert and it's just as stunning. <laughs> and, you know, it just goes on and on like that. Um, I'll go to uh, Bonneville Salt Flats and it's brilliant. And then you go to the Salar de Uni Salt Flats in Bolivia and it's even more amazing. And it's just, it's just this heart. It's this adrenaline thing when you come over that next rise and you just hear Kathy on the back going, wow, oh, it's, just, it's just so worth it. Was there anything that was real scary in Africa? Uh, well, I got attacked, of course, um, by bandits uh, on the Somali-Kenya border. So obviously that was a bit scary. Um, but I mean, I've had malaria, I've broken every bone in my body. Uh, it doesn't bother me. I've had malaria five times. Uh, it, these are just things that happen. If you're, if you're drinking water out the rivers, if you're eating the local animals and you're not bothering where you go or what you do, it's the nature of the game. So I've chosen it. So um, I, I don't want sympathy. I, I want people to enjoy my suffering. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, it's uh, like that's perspective. A, a lot of people complain about the media perspective, for instance, that the media portrays things so difficult uh, or, or in, in, a, in a, a different light. And I'm not going to say bad light because it's just a perspective. Do you think you do that when you're when you're talking about these stories? Because most of what you're talking about, I mean, you get malaria. That's a big thing for a lot of people. It's a big story. You run into a problem. You get your bike shot out from under you, which you did um, sure. on, on that trip. You haven't even mentioned that. Is it, sure, is it a perspective yeah. that you like? Is, is there a certain narrative that you like to take when you're thinking of places that you've been or stories about the adventures that you've had? Ah, uh, Jim, totally. That that mosquito that gave me malaria, that's not his fault, is it? He's just hungry. Mm hmm. So that's number one. That's just the way it goes. Number two, the guys that shot at me, I don't really blame them. I'm not saying go around and shoot people, but I don't know what their situation is. I don't know if they were starving. They see this white guy on a bloody $7,000 bike in the middle of nowhere. <laughs> These things happen. Um, it's not the morally correct way to behave. But if someone steals a loaf of bread and they don't have anything and they got two kids at home, this is life. We need to be more open, not to crime, but more open to different people's situations. So yeah, that's how I approach it. It's like with the army, with the police, with the military. If you turn up at roadblocks and you've got this aggressive attitude, like what do they want? Why are they stopping me? I need to get moving. You're going to get yourself in trouble. All they're doing is their job. They just want to go home to their wife and kid at the end of the day too. 
So it's just everyone, we're all the same, man. We're all the same all over the world. Simple. Well, for filming purposes, I know that the Discovery Channel, anyone for that matter, they want to see those moments. As a matter of fact, those are the moments that we all talk about. We all know that. That adventure is when things start to go wrong um, or at least go sideways compared to what we planned on. And it's certainly the most interesting aspects. And, and I know with your films that that um, it's your emotions. It's dealing with or watching you deal with the things that you go through at the time, in the moment, that really makes the film and, and oh, that, that goes to the, the same with um, these problems we're talking about. Your bike is shot out from underneath you. In the moment, yeah. you're not um, uh, so collected, I guess you could say, or I'm trying to think of another word for it, but, but you're not able to look at it from a Buddhist perspective and say, you know, well, it is what it is sort of thing. Not in the moment. Um, no, I do exactly that, actually. Whatever's happening at the moment. My, my motto is day by day, border by border, nothing lasts forever. So you don't so get stressed at all? Uh, no, I don't. That's 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 a, a very unusual reaction. Maybe that's some of the attraction to watching you on film. Is that reaction? I I, I get emotional um, and I get introspective, um, but I I think you know the the worst thing you can do is if you're trying to relate to other people and show them your film or whatever. If you went, I went from Los Angeles to here. It was four hundred and thirty kilometers, and then I stayed in this place, and the people are bored immediately. We've all done it before, you know. You don't want to hear about roots. You want to hear about what, how people are feeling. That's how I think, anyway. Um, how you change when you're traveling, the people you meet, the, the positive sides of it. You know, the negative things that happen to me, Jim, most of them are my own fault. I mean, when I got uh, shot at in Kenya, I was supposed to go with a convoy, but I asked the army if I could go on my own, and they said yes. 20 minutes later, I got shot at. Um, I go to places... Uh, for example, in Colombia, where we got mugged, I went to the barrio of no return, which is an area where all the prostitutes are on the street naked and there's drug dealers everywhere and it's just surreal. So I decided to film there. But I went in there for two weeks, Jim, and obviously I got mugged in the end. So that was my fault. Um, so a lot of the decisions that I make and the places I stay, it's it's my own endeavor, really. I kind of caused it. <laughs> Talk about mugged. You said you got mugged in the end. What does that mean, mugged? Oh, you don't know the word. Um, no, 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 I know the word. I'm just saying, what does it mean in this, in this instance? Oh, okay. Uh, uh, Kathy and I were in Bogota, and we went into this barrier, and six guys came up, and three grabbed Kathy, three grabbed me. Uh, the main guy at the front had a knife. Um, they, they, one put their arms around us from the back so that our arms were held down. But both Kathy and I are quite large, so they couldn't sort of stop us. So they just grabbed a plastic bag that had a couple of beers in it, um, asked us for mobile phones, and uh, the guy tried to swing at me, so I punched him. Um, he fell down, they jumped up, ran off. But the best thing of the whole story, when they were running away, Kathy went, hey, hold on a minute, you guys have got my room key, give me my room key. And the, the guys that mugged us, the guy turned around put the room keys on the ground and ran off. It was, the, <laughs> it was hilarious. She's a tough girl. So she's pretty bold too. Oh, totally. Yeah. Yeah. She was angry with him. Do you ever worry like in situations like that where maybe your boldness, I mean, like you're standing there and somebody comes up behind you and puts their arms around you and tries to attack you and, and grabs Kathy in particular um, as well. Does mm. it ever run through your head? I push it too far. Yeah. My biggest worry is Kathy. Uh, but she's also, she's an adult 
um, and she has her own choices. And she's she's chosen to join me, you know, and she knows what I'm like. She knows I get in trouble. She knows the road she's going to go on. She knows she's not going to stay in hotels. Um, and I think she's kind of, she's made for this. Because you guys also had an incident in Panama. We talked about that where you ran into trouble in Panama. And um, that was a pretty dicey situation. Yeah, that was a dicey situation. But uh, I, I think, you know, you've got a country with millions of people and you just meet three who are a little bit corrupt and they join together and they just see an opportunity and that's that. It doesn't reflect on the country. No, but it can only, I mean, it only takes one to stop you permanently. Well, yeah, you know, that's the way it goes. I mean, if that's fate for me, if it's a bullet in the head, that's the way it goes. The way we've been talking right now, it sounds almost cavalier, the, the, your your method of uh, of approaching things. But somehow I think there's there's got to be something more to that. How do you approach things? Are, are you cavalier? Do you just sort of waltz through and, and not worry about it and say, come what may? Yeah, I think the past is forgotten. And today is the day to deal with and tomorrow is another situation. So I don't look at the big picture. I just look at today. So for example, this morning I'm in the desert. I need to speak to Jim and then I need to do 350 kilometers to get to this place. And that's what I focus on. And then when I get to the end of that day, we set up the camp, we set up the tent, we make sure sure we're in a safe place. And then you plan the next day. And then like that, it doesn't look like a huge project. It's, it's much more dealable with. Uh, and then you don't get nervous about, oh, my God, what's going to happen if I don't get here or don't make it there or whatever. You just adapt as you go along. How about when you run into delays? Because I, I know at one point when you were doing your circumnavigation of Africa, you spent a long time on a border crossing, at least one border crossing. Yeah, I spent three weeks in Angola. Uh, delays are part of the journey. Now, it's, it, it's easy for me to say that. I mean, I understand if listeners are listening and they go, oh, well, I only get a two-week break from work. Of course, that's a total disaster for them. Uh, but for me, I've got a little bit more leeway because it's kind of my job. And if uh, delays are really part of the whole situation in many developing countries. And if you start getting angry, it's going to delay it much more. So if some chap wants to go off and have his lunch while you're waiting for papers, just wait till he's had his lunch. It's not going to change your life. Have you always been like this? Yes. Right from a kid? Yes, I think so. It's weird because that doesn't sound like it's a very competitive type of personality. And, and yet you said <laughs> you, were, you, were, you were doing uh, dirt bike racing. Um, it's, it's very difficult to explain. I'm very competitive when it comes to sport activities, et cetera, et cetera. But I'm not competitive mentally. I don't want to argue with people. I don't want to say I did this better than you. You know, if I get trolls on my site, uh, which I do, I get people criticizing me and everything. I just say, I'm really sorry you feel like that. And then we're not friends anymore because it's easier, isn't it? Uh, you can't get on with everybody. Uh, you can just try. So yeah, I'm very competitive if it's activity, if it's sport, if it's doing things. But as far as trying to get one up on someone, I'm not interested. Hey, we're taking a short break to tell you about two companies. Now, remember, it's these companies that help make this show possible. And we only accept companies that we feel have great products and services. Stay with us. we got more coming up after the break. Part of motorcycle adventure is the thrill of discovery exploring new places and visiting some iconic places. 
And when those all meld into one, it's really hard to resist. And the Red Rock Garage is becoming one of those places that motorcyclists go well out of their way to visit. The Red Rock Garage is located in Beaverdale, British Columbia, surrounded by mountains, and it offers some of the best motorcycle riding anywhere, both on and off-road. And the folks at the Red Rock Garage are motorcycle enthusiasts themselves, and that's how they became known as a coffee shop with a motorcycle addiction. They've got fuel and all the amenities that us riders want. They even have a campground and a rental unit. Get out and explore. And be sure to add the Red Rock Garage as one of your destinations for your next trip in Beaverdale, British Columbia. It's redrockgarage.ca. Make sure you tell them you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. Redrockgarage.ca. They say that cross-training is a good way to hone your skills. I think that's true. You know, for me, it's mountain biking, and, and mountain biking offers plenty of opportunity to work on my balance and slow-speed control. But after a good season of riding my motorcycle in all kinds of weather and terrain, the one thing I notice, or the big thing that I notice on the bicycle, is my foot pegs. In the past, I've used clipless pedals, but the ones I have now are plastic platform-style pedals. They do the part. They grip my boots some, but when it gets slippery, like in our recent snowfall, they just don't cut it. And that's the same with motorcycle foot pegs. If you want the ultimate control of your motorcycle, then you need foot pegs that are designed for what you do. IMS Products has a full line of adventure motorcycle foot pegs for any style of riding, particularly adventure riders, designed by racers and riders with a lifetime warranty and made of super tough material. IMSproducts.com. Make sure you tell them that we sent you from Adventure Rider Radio. IMSproducts.com. Now we'll get back to talking with Spencer Conway, professional adventure rider. He stopped en route to do this interview while making his way to the freighter ship that will deliver him southward to Columbia, where immediately afterwards he'll begin his traverse of the Darien Gap. Here's Spencer. Do you have a, um, a particular story out of the book that um, would give people an insight into what the book's all about? Oh, my God, that's a difficult one. Okay, anyway, I was in Libya and I woke up and I decided to head into the desert and uh, I didn't see anybody at all. When I got into the desert, um, I was riding along and suddenly these Bedouin tribesmen came towards me and uh, actually one of them even had an eye patch and an uh some sort of eagle on his shoulder, like in a movie. It was stunning. Oh. Yeah, and that you can see that on, on my website. I've got photos of those guys. They all had guns. Um, I approached them cautiously. Didn't speak Arabic. Um, uh, they didn't speak English, but we managed with sign language and everything. But my favorite bit was that I hadn't seen a tree all day. And this guy said, I'm just popping off to get some firewood. He disappeared, and he came back with a big log on his back. They sorted out this food, amazing Arabic food. We ate together, uh, had a good laugh, most of it with sign language. Fell asleep, um, didn't need a tent because we're just on, you know, on the open desert. But when I woke up in the morning, they were all gone. And uh, there was a piece of cardboard, uh, the only sign that they'd been there because they covered up the fire, all their stuff was gone. They'd almost swept the sand, it seemed like, which what a way to respect nature. I thought it was amazing. And there was a piece of paper. Uh, with thank you written on it, man. Yeah, nearly got me into tears. And it's those little little meetings with people from a totally different culture, totally different language that stick in your mind. 
It's not the run of the mill little room or the basic asphalt ride. It's that chance meeting in the middle of nowhere with people who live a completely different life to me. It's wonderful. How do you film that? Uh, you just bring the camera out immediately. So uh, I often it doesn't work. I mean, in Kenya with the Maasai, the Maasai tribesmen, they're famous for jumping up and down and they're very, very tall. Mm -hmm. They are goat, goat herders. Uh, I, I met a bunch of them and uh, I walked up with my camera and all he did was very, very gently, he picked up his spear and he touched it against the edge of my camera and pushed it sideways, basically saying, you're not filming me. So that was that. So I didn't. But I generally approach it by taking the camera up because it's always the first meeting that works. If you meet someone and then you go, ah, oh, can I film you? It changes the whole vibe. Mm. So do you do some clandestine filming with a, a GoPro or a chest-mounted camera or something? Yeah. Uh, I, I find it very difficult when people walk up to a, let's say, indigenous or local person, for want of a better word, and just start snapping and taking photos of them. You, we wouldn't appreciate it. So it, it's getting that balance of being polite but also trying to get realistic footage. But the last thing I want to do is upset people. So it's just take it. Each situation is different. You're six foot four. I am. Does that play into your interactions with people? <laughs> I'm not sure where you're going there, but uh, it's, it's, it's very difficult to hide uh, in a crowd. I mean, obviously Africans, uh, all of them are shorter than me, apart from the Maasai. South and Central America, they're not the tallest people. So, yeah, it's very difficult to hide. But, um, yeah, it gives me good visibility when I go over hills on the bike. <laughs> so do you find that people react to you differently? Or do you imagine, because you have no comparison, I know this is this is just what you know is six foot sure. four. But, you're, but very tall is, is can, can sometimes be intimidating. And do you think that has that impact on people? Um, I, I, don't, I don't think so. You know, the, the, the thing I do realize is I'm never, people say, oh, just try and uh, gel into the society and, you know, don't, don't show off yourself. But it's impossible when you're on a huge bike and you're as tall as me. And so the main thing is manners, is just be polite. And it doesn't matter if you're six meters tall. If someone sees that you're decent and you're not aggressive, they're, they're you know, they're immediately put at ease. So, yeah, it's like I said to other guys before, take your time on those first meetings, take your helmet off, extend your hand, say hello, how's your family? It takes 30 seconds of your life, but it puts that person at ease and then you might get to know them for the rest of your life. You mentioned about, um, you know, difficult to, to blend when you're riding an expensive motorcycle. That Tenere, and you just, just mentioned also the 10 years in the Tenere, that Tenere, you got that given to you for the circumnavigation of Africa. You're still riding it now. How did you, first of all, how did you get a bike? Um, okay. Uh, I contacted Yamaha um, about my trip. They kind of knew me before from South Africa. And uh, yeah, they provided my bike. It's the first free bike I've ever had in my life. I normally buy a bike for about $100 and <laughs> try and do it up, you know. Um, so yeah, I was like a kiddie at Christmas. Uh, it turned up at my house in a truck and I've had it ever since. I've been offered a Honda Cross Tourer. I've been offered a Honda Africa Twin. I've been offered the new Tenere T700, but I'm going to stick with my old dinosaur. They have to be just grinning like crazy with the success of that. The one motorcycle 
and 10 years later, you're still telling everyone how great it is. Hey, you know what, Jim? They're not happy because uh, that, that, they don't make that anymore, oh. that motorbike. <laughs> it's out of production, and that's why they wanted me to take the T7 so that that would be promoting their, their new bike. So, yeah, they're in a bit of a mood with me at the moment. But for me, it's more important that I can try and get that one motorcycle around every single continent. Why? I don't know why. I've just, uh, I promised I would never get attached to a machine, but unfortunately it's happened. <laughs> it's just attachment or is it, or are you looking at it like, you know, for after the fact and saying, well, you know, at least maybe one day this can, could go to a museum or something and say it's done all this? Yeah, of course. The great thing is that uh, it looks good. So um, when I do all the shows like in Milan and Rome and London, etc., that it goes on a stage and they backlight it and they put up some blurb. So it looks a lot better than me on stage. So it's, it's a nice prop to have. And yeah, I'll keep it for the rest of my life. How do you manage to keep this this bike going? I mean, you said yourself you're a lousy rider, which we know is not true, um, but you're riding two up through all these adventures, incredible um, areas that are, that are, and I know most times you're looking for off the beaten track, you're, you avoid the easy routes. How do you keep the bike going? Yeah, sure. It's, it's a very simple thing. If it's a good bike, which it is, it's a strong bike. It's a single cylinder. It's, it's fairly easy to maintain. It doesn't have high, um, computer work or anything like that. So number one, just start off like everyone should just maintain the normal stuff. Keep the chain clean, keep it lubed, keep the tension correct, check the cush drives, make sure there's not too much movement. Um, you know, the oil, the, the coolant, uh, the tire pressure, make sure that's right for the road you're on and uh, the basic WD-40, just basic stuff that we should all do uh, and do it regularly. Um, and if your bike has a very tough day on a very tough road, just go from the back of the bike, check every single bolt all the way to the front of the bike. Just, you know, uh, common sense stuff. Uh, obviously, you need to replace certain things at certain times. I've had plenty of tires. Um, I, I've had, I finally gave up after 150,000 kilometers and I got a new seat cause it was split in half. How many miles and how many countries now? Uh, oh God, I'm not sure exactly. In t uh, countries I'm positive 131. Uh, the mileage on this bike is 151,018, I think. And on my XT 500, about 35,000. So out of all these countries, all these years, all these miles, kilometers that you've spent, all these days camping, all the border crossings you've done, and the people mm -hmm. that you've met, what would be your top tips for any traveler? Uh, my top tips for any traveler is don't read foreign office websites of any country, because unfortunately it's like with packaging of, let's say, shampoo. They need to tell you all the side effects or, or you know, uh, pills, medical pills. And if you read every single side effect of every tablet, you'll never take your bloody paracetamol or ibuprofen. It's exactly the same with traveling. If you start reading negative things, it'll get into your head. The fact of the matter is if you're doing a two-day tour, a one-week tour, a one-month, whatever, that's your dream. Don't be scared. Just get out and do it. And you'll find that people are actually nicer than you are. Is that tempered with um, some common sense or anything? Because, you know, we, we get warnings for a reason, right? So is there any, is there any sort of filtering process that you go through where you, where you hear certain yes. things? 
No, certainly. I mean, I, I'm not saying the world is full of roses. I, there's no way I'm going to walk through the middle of Johannesburg with a stereo and a phone and $500 right. in my and, hand. And, and the thing not. is, Spencer, sorry to interrupt you, yes. but you, you actually probably could do that in one instance and be totally fine. But to go through it in one instance and be fine and tell everybody, hey, it's no problem, I made it, is kind of irresponsible. That's exactly it. What I'm saying is use common sense. Don't flash your cash. Don't go out at night in places where people tell you not to. Assess the vibe when you stop somewhere. It, people tend to downplay their own feelings. But if you come into an area or a situation and you don't feel comfortable, you just don't feel it's right. It's like a gut thing. Get out of there. It's that simple. But the biggest thing is, yeah, be careful. Be polite. But people are not going to go through the things that I went through, Jim. Consider that most people will go for a short period. I've been going for 10 years. You'll have problems anywhere in your life at some point in 10 years. I also push the boundaries. So I would say to everybody, the world is bloody safe. Just keep your common sense about you. Well, I wish you the best of luck um, in the Darien Gap coming up. Spencer, great to talk to you. Thank you very much. Oh, thank you very much, Jim. I appreciate it. And I'll get in touch when I'm through the Darien. That was Spencer Conway. He's now underway to Columbia, where the Darien Gap awaits him and Kathy. His new book that we spoke about here briefly uh, is called The Japanese-Speaking Curtain Maker. It's available at most bookstores and online as well. And you can order directly from his website. His website is spencer-conway.com. And that link will be in our show notes, as well as some photos that Spencer gave us of the rest of his day after we talked in this interview, which is kind of interesting to see what he goes through in a day. Those photos are in the show notes for this episode. Now, as well, after we did this interview, Kathy agreed to come on the show and talk about her experience and her thoughts about the Daring Gap. So we're going to do something with that whole adventure of the Daring Gap in an upcoming episode. You'll hear the story fresh from the jungle in the coming weeks. I just want to remind you that this episode has been brought to you in part by Max BMW Motorcycles at www.maxbmw.com. Also, Best Rest Products at www.cyclepump.com. Green Chili Adventure Gear at greenchiliadv.com and Moto Breeze Chain Oilers at motobreeze.com. Hey, you do us a great favor. If anytime you're dealing with these companies, anytime you see them anywhere, you mention that you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. up another episode of adventure rider radio and we sure hope you enjoyed listening to it as much as we did producing it special thanks to our producer elizabeth martin and to you the listener thank you very much for being a part of this remember we have all of our episodes on the website and anywhere you get podcasts for that matter we have our other show arr raw that comes out once a month and you can get that also anywhere you find podcasts 
We'd love it if you'd share our podcasts on social media, wherever you are, um, both ARR and ARR Raw. Uh, that helps get the word out and it gets more people listening to the show. Also, we'd love to have your support. It's built on a model of some advertising and listener support. If you'd like to drop by our website and click on the support button, we'd be very grateful. Thanks for listening. My name is Jim Martin. Now it's time to get out there and ride your bike. Talk to you next week. I'm Ryan Pyle, and you're listening to Adventure Rider Radio.